From the Shumway Theater in downtown Rockford, this is the Guilty Pleasures Podcast, presented by Rockford Writers Guild. Here is your host, Connie Kuntz. Hi, everyone. It's Connie Kuntz, and you're listening to the Guilty Pleasures Podcast. It's season one, it's episode six, and it's February, which is also Creative Romance Month and Black History Month, which is perfect because this month we are interviewing and listening to the writing of Sharon Nesbitt Davis. She's standing right next to me here in the Shumway studio. Hi, Sharon. Hello, Connie. (laughs) Ms. Sharon Nesbitt Davis is the author of her memoir in progress, Intended which is about her intricate journey into her interracial marriage of 41 years to actor George Davis. Sharon, could you please set the scene? Tell us what year we are in before we start this. Sure. This is um, 1957, and we're in Quincy, Illinois, which was the town that I grew up in that's along the Mississippi River. Okay, fabulous. Sharon is going to share a chapter, maybe two, every week in February from Intended. And we're going to see Sharon through her writing at different stages in her life. So in this chapter, she's five years old. Correct. Okay. So with that said, let's go back in time to Quincy, Illinois. And the year is 1957. I know how to get to Dewey School. You go to the corner, cross the street, and walk three blocks. But Mother makes me wait for my brothers, John and Roger, who take too long to eat lunch. But if I ask them to hurry, they eat slower. When they come outside, I run to get there before someone else takes my doll. My brothers go to the baseball diamond, and I go across the playground to the little schoolhouse for the retarded kids. During the summer, it's a playhouse. My doll is in a crib with the others. They are naked and hard rubber with curls carved in their heads. They are identical except for color. Three are white and one is dark brown, and she is mine. I give her my favorite name, Nancy. My doll at home has clothes handmade by my grandmother. Each outfit comes with a matching knit sweater and cap. Alice has brown hair like mine, and I comb it every night before we go to bed. Her eyes have lashes and shut when we lie down. While Alice sleeps, I stare at shadows on the ceiling and think of Nancy. She lays watching moon shadows, wondering where I am. A new girl comes to the playhouse and wants my doll. I point to the crib. There are more dolls in there. I want that one. No, I'm telling. Go ahead. She stomps off to the woman who wears glasses, sits in a corner, and never laughs. The woman comes over with the girl and says, Sharon, this is Roxanne. Be nice and let her play with the doll. I hug Nancy against my chest. It's not fair. I had her first. The woman stands over me and frowns. I hold Nancy behind my back and get one of the other dolls. You can have this one. Roxanne won't take her. She points at Nancy. I want that one. The woman leans close to my face. She smells like my grandmother, but doesn't smile. How about you play with this other one and let her play with the one she wants? The sick feeling comes over me like when my mother is mad at me for something, but I don't know why. My neighbor Linda Sue comes over. She's a year older, and I never argue with her. 
She protects me in the neighborhood from the older boys, and we pretend to be sisters. Linda Sue says, give her the doll. Tears start. I hold Nancy tighter, knowing something bad is about to happen. Linda Sue whispers, that girl is colored and that doll is colored, so she should get it. Linda Sue gives me a hard look. Why do you want it anyway? I loosen my grip, and the woman takes Nancy and gives her to Roxanne. She points to the white doll I had gotten out for Roxanne. You two could play together. Linda Sue goes back to the paint table. The woman goes back to her desk, and I put the white doll back in the crib, sit down, and wait to get Nancy back. Roxanne doesn't talk, hold, or feed her. She lays Nancy on the dirty wood floor while she plays with blocks and watches me watch her. An older boy with matching brown skin comes to the door. Roxy, time to go. She buries her beneath the white dolls and runs after him. I dig Nancy out. I'm sorry. I still run to the playhouse every day, but if Roxanne shows up, I give her my doll. For Christmas, I get a rubber baby doll with carved curls in her head. She has bright blue eyes that open and close. She and Alice sleep with me every night, and I tell them about their faraway sister. Roxanne and I are both in kindergarten, but she goes in the morning and I go in the afternoon. We do not see each other until the end of the year picnic. There are games, hot dogs, cotton candy, and the class races. When it is time to start the races, the crowd forms on either side of a large grassy area. The principal and some of the fathers check it for dog poop and rabbit holes. My brothers told me last year a kindergartner stepped in a hole, broke his leg, and it had to be chopped off. They said the one-legged boy was at the picnic, but I never found him. The kindergarten girls race first. Since Roxanne was in the morning class, I don't know how fast she is. I am the fastest runner in the afternoon because at home I race my brothers. They don't let me win, but once I came close. Today, I want to beat Roxanne. The teacher tries to get us in a straight line. Most of the girls are giggling, and I know I can beat them. Roxanne and another girl are the only ones with brown skin, and they are not laughing. They want to win, too. The principal yells, On your mark, get set, go. I fix my eyes on the finish line, run hard, and hit the rope. Tie. The principal holds up my white arm and a brown one. Her name is Vicky. She doesn't like Roxanne either. Sharon. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was wonderful. Well, thank you. It was wonderful. It's just blah, blah, blah. It's wonderful to be here. Wonderful. Yeah, Is it thanks. okay if I start asking you a few questions? Sure. Okay. Sure. Go ahead. <laughs> right off the bat, you talk about your brothers, John mm-hmm. and Roger. And right. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about where they are now. Right. Well, of course, they are my older brothers, which I always point out to them. You are my <laughs> older brothers. So they are both retired. Uh, but Roger is 
out in uh, Portland, Oregon. He was a lawyer and worked for, and I should <laughs> I should really, really know this, but he worked for the Department of Interior, I believe is what, what he was working for, um, which is, I probably should know a lot more. But we didn't really, he didn't really talk that much with me about what he was doing with all of that, mm-hmm. but I just know he was a lawyer and married and had four kids um, and has grandkids and all of that. But um, And John uh, is the oldest brother, and he was a teacher for a long time, ended up out in Arizona in uh, Tuba City, lived and worked on the Navajo Hopi Reservation mm-hmm. and taught English, and he's now in Phoenix and travels the world. His second home is actually Nepal, mm. where he teaches English as a second language at a Buddhist monastery. Wow. And, um, yeah, so he's uh, travels everywhere doing uh, tourist things, but not actually tourist things. At a certain point, he just wanted to be of service, so mm-hmm. he did some service, more service-oriented type of things, and ended up with this relationship with the monastery, which is a dream thing for him. So That's amazing. Yeah. Well, both gentlemen sound wonderful. Thank you they for are. sharing they the, who they are right now, and yeah. thank you for including your family in your memoir in progress. As mm-hmm. we get further along in this, and it all unfolds, it's just a fascinating story. I can't wait for our listeners to eventually become readers of okay. Intended. Uh, quick question about Nancy, your doll Nancy. You mentioned Nancy is your favorite name. Do you remember why? I really actually do not remember why. <laughs> I just remember thinking it was just the most beautiful name. And I I can't say that I remember even, I, I have no recollection as to how I even knew it was a name, but I thought it was a beautiful name. I wish that I had been named Nancy. Mm-hmm. And um, so so yes, so that's the name that I did give the doll at the play and the playroom, or the the doll in the story. And then um, later, I did actually name the white doll that I got for Christmas. I did actually end up naming her Nancy as well, <laughs> um, though she was the second Nancy, not mm-hmm. <laughs> not the original. But yes, and I still have that doll. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Uh, could you bring it so I can take a picture and share it on social media? Well, sure. That would be wonderful. Um, yes, she she is minus eyelashes now because one of my brothers, John, in fact, decided one day to cut off all the eyelashes off of my doll. Wow. Um, yeah, so that happened. Okay. <laughs> well, things happen. Sure, well, I sure. I can't wait to meet this doll. Yeah. About the doll. I am yes. curious about your doll culture. Your doll culture from when you were a little kid? to mm-hmm. when you became a mother, and now you're a grandmother. Right. Could you speak to what dolls mean to you as a toy mm-hmm. at those three stages in your right. life? Right. Well, being the only girl in the family, I think I got dolls really early. Mm-hmm. And I I just remember wishing that they were real because I wanted a sister so bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I would pretend that they were that they were real. Uh, my mother did not like Barbie dolls. Those came out around that time. Mm-hmm. She didn't like them, but she got me Jan and Jill dolls that had 
actual um, working um, knees and things like that mm-hmm. so that and they were a little more the way a body would actually be so I had those dolls but they were always I always knew that they were not the Barbie doll that everybody else had so I I was always encouraged to be a little bit different, and so I kind of embraced being different, but I was also forced to be different because I had parents that would not, did not want to go along with what was necessarily popular oh, for it. everyone, so, so I, I had that. Um, I was also, though, because of having brothers and being in a neighborhood where there were mostly boys and being in a culture that male-dominated, domination, male dominant is, is what I just felt as a child. I was, I I was always wanting to, to compete with, with my brothers and Mm -hmm. all that. So I, I was kind of a tomboy. Um, and when we would play, I would sometimes take the role of being a boy. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I had I had kind of a weird relationship with the dolls that I, I like them. I like pretending. There would be days I would pretend that I was a mom mm-hmm. and they were my babies. And then other days they were warriors. So <laughs> you know, just kind of would go back and forth a bit. Um, so, yeah, we did, I did that. I did that. What do you think of toys today versus toys back then? Well, my grandkids play with toys very similar. I mean, they have, they're far more sophisticated. But I mean, just the other day, my the granddaughter who will be three was playing with my husband and using all of the the figures that were uh, for Junior Clue game. And she was creating toys with with all of that. And she had the boys on one side and the girls on the other. And the boys were having to come and ask her to, or ask the girls to dance and do different things. And then they began to battle. And so, (laughs) um, I, I think, you know, toys are tools for use of imagination. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, the good thing that I see with my grandkids is that, um, their imagination is still intact. Mm-hmm. Even with the sophistication of the toys, they don't use them only for the purpose, supposedly, in which they might have been created. Mm-hmm. They turn them into other things. Oh, I love it. So I, I'm i not really necessarily concerned about that as much as I hear some people being concerned. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I do think that humans are naturally creative and naturally curious. I think we just need to... Um, encourage that and give spaces for that so that's what I try to do in my life and all of (laughs) and at our house hopefully do you remember a favorite toys that Bahia and Nathan had when you were a mother and they were little kids yeah oh um, and just to say Bahia and Nathan are her two children yes um well Nathan had a bear collection a uh, a stuffed bear collection and there was one year that he he specifically said he wanted he wanted a teddy bear. I mean that he wanted that, and he and he was really pretty specific in that he wanted a classic teddy bear. So I found this this dark brown bear with a red bow tie and something like that, and he thought it was the most perfect bear ever, and he loved it. And then I think I ended up getting him like a lighter brown one of the same 
that you know the same version or uh, just a, a different version of the same bear and so the, the two of them and then it just exploded and so mm-hmm. there was you know this huge collection that he had um but he also had star wars figures and all those kinds of things but with the bears i remember he was starting he he was writing stories and they were all different characters and different voices and all that kind of stuff and then but he would have stuffed animals she'd have she had Barbie dolls. We always made sure that she had um, uh, culturally, <laughs> ethnic, diverse Barbie dolls. I don't think I ever bought her a white doll. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was pretty adamant about that. And then we would go see her cousins in Chicago who were African-American cousins who all had white dolls. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, but eventually they started buying the more diverse dolls too. But she was the kind of kid that would play with other kids based on what they were interested in. So she really didn't play Barbies much at home, except when her cousins would come or when somebody else would come with their Barbie dolls. So, um, yeah, the reason I ask is I wonder if you notice an influence of the toys in how your children and you and your grandchildren growing or grew up and became the mother and writer and parents that they Mm -hmm. are. Well, I think the influence is there. Yeah, it started it, off pretty hard yeah, with the dog. Yeah, it could be. Um, we also did a lot of um, reading books and acting out stories from books. Mm-hmm. And one of the favorite things that, that I remember, and we were just talking about this not too long ago, that they would record stories into a tape recorder. Mm-hmm. And we, would, we did that a lot, too. So... Um, I think we tried that toys were a tool, but not necessarily the only thing. And and it's really more, hopefully, it's just more your imagination. Mm -hmm. And there's so many things that you can draw on for that. Well, I love how you nurture imagination, not just in your family, Mm -hmm. but in your profession. And for those of you who don't know, Sharon is also the executive director of the Rockford Area Arts Council. And she's also a professional mime. So I'm standing next to a wonderfully creative, intelligent, open-minded, and even more importantly, open-hearted person. So I hope you're learning a little bit more about yourself and her as we go through this interview. Thank you, Connie. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Can you tell me about when you, you mentioned that the dolls, I wanted like a sister, treating like little baby Mm -hmm. sisters. Mm -hmm. Do you remember when you wanted to become a mother but a different kind of mother? Because you were already unique and were being raised to be unique. Do you know when you wanted to be an adult, but different from the adults that you were surrounded with? Right. Well, I know in in college, I, and well, actually in the, I graduated from high school in the seven, in 1970. And the women's lib movement was really coming to, um, popular um, notion or understanding and and there was a lot of, a lot of that going on and I was I was certainly reading a lot of books about that and thinking about that and I had felt at a certain point that I I needed to do something more with my life than be a wife and mother mm-hmm. and I was really um, I think in many ways just trying to push down any natural tendencies I might have towards that. I really didn't like feeling all um, teary-eyed around babies and <laughs> things like that. So I I was really working at 
trying to become what I thought was the new feminist person Mm -hmm. and realized at a certain point that that was that really wasn't working Mm -hmm. and uh, and it was really my um, having when I was 19 I became a a member of the Baha'i faith and there the equality of women and men is a very much important part of that but I I didn't actually understand what that was until I read the writings and Baha'u'llah describing the importance of women mm-hmm. and who we really are and that we have always been equal. Mm-hmm. There's, there was never a, a time in which we weren't. And the qualities that we have that the world really needs of compassion and empathy and uh, all of this really helped me to just go with my gut again Mm -hmm. (laughs) that said, okay, yeah, you can be, you can be a loving mother. You can do that. You can nurture children and you can also nurture yourself and you can, um, do career. You can do, you can do all of that, which, um, that was not the example that I grew up with. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Can you talk about the example you grew up with then? My mother was, um, by the time I knew her, of course, she was she was um, a housewife, and she would say, "I'm just a housewife." That was her term, and I I I went along with that mm-hmm. <laughs> because that's how she defined herself. Uh, she had gone to business college, however, she put helped put my father through uh, his master's degree program mm-hmm. and worked as a secretary until my brother was born, eldest brother, and then she did not go back to work. So I do remember, again, during my um, the time that I was trying to figure all of this stuff out, um, actually confronting her mm-hmm. by saying, okay, why are you still at home? Because all of us have gone. You could be out there. You got a business degree. You could be using those skills. Because she balanced checkbook, and she, you know, she she kept up with her typing. She did all of that, and she said, "Well, your father makes enough money for us to be comfortable. Mm-hmm. And if I were to take another person's job, if I if I were to become a secretary, I could be taking the job that another woman." actually needs for her family so she see. i thought okay but that's kind of being a part of the sisterhood here mm-hmm. um absolutely but she did then do a lot of volunteer work she was a member of like a cir- church circle with the presbyterian church she did um layouts for babies in the Congo Mm -hmm. she you know did and she was not a person that liked to sew the only time I heard her curse was when she sewed things Mm -hmm. so so this is not an easy thing for her to sew these little jackets and stuff but Mm -hmm. um so I I I did come to appreciate her but what I saw was a woman who just seemed really um not very happy she was always um seemed to be in a bad mood Mm -hmm. I I did not ever see her just sitting down and enjoying us playing with us um it was always she had housework to do she was trying to keep the you know up with the laundry she um was to my mind just not a very happy person so I always felt like she wasn't doing what she really wanted to do okay yeah I understand uh you talk about her having uh 
when she's mad at you for something, I don't know why. That line in there, <laughs> uh, that sick feeling you get. Yeah. And you know she's mad yeah. at you, but you don't know why. I know that from childhood. I also know that feeling as an adult. I wondered mm-hmm. if you would tell us what makes you get that sick feeling nowadays. Oh, sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night thinking about all the things that I need to be doing to make sure that the programs that the Arts Council have will continue, that the work that we're trying to do and and helping people to understand how important it is to have the arts in the midst of all this that's going on, that... um, so and I wonder, you... like, you know, <laughs> am I up to this? Do I, do I know how to do this? And then I realize, of course, I do not know how to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. But, uh, but yeah, the, I I get sick feelings like that from time to time when I it's interesting when I doubt work can be kind of like a mother. It can be. Yes, I never really thought yeah. of work as a mother in yeah. terms of a metaphor. Right, deadlines, and mm-hmm. you know. And then you have a grant, and are you doing all the things that you need to do to honor that grant and to honor the people that, you know, trust you with um, their donations, make sure that, you know, you are doing things in the way that will um, uplift, you know, the community and the organization and mm-hmm. all of that. Yeah, <laughs> that's there. Uh, I have a question about you as a competitor. Aha, uh-huh. yes. Uh, there's a race here. There is a race. You have brothers, mm-hmm. yep. and you're being raised to be different. Right. How Are you a competitor now? <laughs> I, I have worked to not be a competitor against other people, mm-hmm. more my, myself. So um, I do question and make and try try to make sure that um, every day I I set intentions of what I want to accomplish and try to accomplish those things, and that feels a little bit like a competition sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I notice on days where I don't, I feel uh, that I I don't. Um, it's not as as um, productive of a day. It can sometimes be a, an okay day. But it doesn't feel as productive, so I, I it's more of a self competition. But the competition against other people, mm-hmm. that that was something that was very much a part of my family that I have chosen to uh, try to eradicate from myself mm-hmm. because I I just don't want that. I understand. Yeah, yeah. People cried a lot in my family, or my mother and I cried a lot mm-hmm. because my father and my brothers were so competitive. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, so don't I don't want that kind of crying. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes! Um, you talk about brown skin, mm-hmm. and the girl Roxanne says colored. Mm-hmm. Um, well, actually, Linda Sue said colored. Linda Sue, I'm yeah. so sorry. Yeah. Um, there's colored. There's Negro. There's mm-hmm. black. There's African American. Mm-hmm. What What should we say? Well. Of course, because of growing up in the 50s and the terminology changes. Mm-hmm. And what I, my, my rule has always been just listen to people and, and refer, make the references that they use themselves. I mean, just be, be mindful and, and listen and not assume that you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, 
and that actually differs with with people. Um, I remember it was it was quite a while before I used black mm-hmm. because uh, growing up black had not been that was actually something that that people used to offend and hurt people. Yes. And so when black is beautiful came up, um, it was something that really took took time. And I noticed among my friends that it took a while for them to say, I'm black. And af- But after a certain point, that's what everybody was saying. And mm-hmm. so I said that as well. And then there was a woman um, who was probably in her 80s, when I, and I was in my 20s, and she was in our uh, Baha'i community, and she did not like that term at all. It hurt her. Mm-hmm. That to her was an insult. It was almost as bad as the N-word. Mm-hmm. And she you know, pointed to her skin, which was um, kind of a, a light brown, and she said, that is not my color. And so we called her Mrs. Chavis. <laughs> you know, I mean, and I feel like, I mean, really... <laughs> You know, you call you call your friends by their by their names yes. anyway. But I I think it's just respectful just to listen and not um, and go with what how people wish to be called themselves. I hundred so. percent agree. I think that's beautiful. Um, what is something that you would like to let the listeners know about you before we wrap up this interview? Well, I think. The the reason that I even started this this book, which is this memoir that is about uh, my essentially it's, it's about my my forty one year marriage to a man who is African American. He goes by both African American and Black, mm-hmm. um, and it was an unanswer or an sometimes an unspoken question that people had that how how did I end up in an interracial marriage? There was a point when it was, uh, when people would find out that my either fiancé or then later husband was black, there would be a visible reaction and, and sometimes uh, outbursts and mm-hmm. sometimes actual questions and um, realized that it was unusual enough that people wondered why. So, uh, so in a sense, this book has been kind of formulating in my head for quite, quite a while. And, and I wanted people to understand that on the one hand, you could say, oh, it's just two people who fell in love. Mm-hmm. But in this country, race is never that simple. Mm-hmm. And for all of us, no matter what experiences we come from, and I'm talking about white people now, mm-hmm. there are things that we have to examine and there's layers. And for me, when I realized, uh, when I started writing the book, realizing the layers that, on the one hand, form my ideas about what race was and wasn't, but there are these things that were hidden that I needed to, to really come to terms with. And I was thinking, you know, for someone like me who has had the experiences I have that I still need to examine and look at that, um, I'm hoping that people can read it and and start seeing that this is a process that we all are still still needing to do. Yes. That it's, um, we're not going to get 
rid of racism until we fully look at it mm-hmm. and examine it and are willing to um, to face face it. But it, it doesn't have to be um, what it it can be a joyful experience. I mean, I have I have enjoyed uncovering and figuring this stuff out mm-hmm. and um, and embracing what now is. So okay. I don't know if that makes sense. It totally makes sense. But, and okay. it makes me excited about next week when we listen to chapter two okay. from Intended and talk a little bit more about your journey into your marriage. All right. Sharon, thank you so much. Thank you, Connie. Guilty Pleasures podcast was made possible by Rockford Writers Guild, the Shumway, Rockford Area Arts Council, Freeman AV, and you, our listeners. Remember to let us know what you think of Guilty Pleasures by rating us on iTunes, emailing editor at rockfordwritersguild.org, or joining us on social media. Find us on Facebook under Rockford Writers Guild. We are on Twitter and Instagram at Guilty Pleasures. This is your producer, Jesse Koontz. Thank you for listening. Now go write.